Uh, for this episode, we're going to take a slightly different tack in that I'm going to interview Bruno and ask him to talk about his career and his approach to lighting design, but through the lens of his recent experience lighting TV the musical, which it is fair to say we have mentioned several times on our podcast, uh, but we've never elaborated on it. And I, for one, am very curious to know more since I've not done a big Broadway musical. And for many people, landing such a job would represent the pinnacle of glamour. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I really enjoyed it, mainly because I was working with a fantastic creative team and a fantastic cast as well. And it garnered a lot of attention, didn't it? It did, yeah. It, it's, it's been a fantastic success. The audiences have loved it. Can you pinpoint shows throughout your career which represent turning points and landmarks? Uh, is Tina one of those? I don't know if Tina is. I think possibly Miss Saigon in the West End was probably a bigger turning point in that was my first show of that scale. I, mean, I did From Here to Eternity, which is a slightly smaller scale Western musical a couple of years before that. But being invited to do Saigon with Cameron was probably a bigger sort of turning point because that sort of put me on the map of the the, you know, the, the sort of the, the big scale musicals. And of course, that then transferred to Broadway and we did a American tour and a UK tour and it's been to lots of other places around the world as well. So, so that brought you to the attention of uh, producers and directors uh, who, who then started to see you in that light as it were no pun intended it certainly meant that i was established at doing a show of that kind of scale how long did it actually take to make that show i guess maybe a year or so sort of running up to the first opening in london hmm. um and of course my the intensity of my time on it gradually got more and more as we got closer to getting into the theater it's very hard to quantify isn't it how much time you actually spend designing it because there's the sort of obvious things like sitting in front of a computer, uh, drawing a CAD plan, but there's also the time spent daydreaming about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's very true. I don't know how you account for the daydreaming time because there's a certain amount of actually sitting, drawing a plan in front of a computer. There's a certain amount of reading the script, listening to the music, I mean, obviously getting to know Tina's music and Tina's life and trying to glean information of what her performances were like through the mm. years of her career as well to get a sense of the flavour of... Um, how she did perform live because that was very important. There's a lot of that in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it was a big commitment and and I, I presume quite quite consuming at the time. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, like all of us, during the planning stages, that you're still carrying on doing lots of other shows at the same time because that's how we freelancers manage our careers. So, um, as always, you've got time when you're thinking about it full time, and times when it's sort of bubbling around in the background while in the middle of doing something else. And trying to squeeze in family life as well, of course. And trying to squeeze in family life <laughs> as well, exactly. But you're by no means on your own uh, when you work on a show like Tina. You have an entire lighting department. Can you describe your team a little bit for us? Yes. So I guess you could split it into the kind of creative side and the technical side. So um, on the creative side, there's, there's, there's me as a lighting designer. And then there's a lighting programmer who, I guess, is part creative, part technical. So sort of the, my right-hand person. Um, who on the London Tina was Warren Letton and on the Broadway Tina was Max Derula. Mm. And then there's an associate lighting designer who is someone who will help me with the practical things like plan drawing and administration and note-taking and things, but also someone who I can bounce ideas off and has a creative input and someone who has responsibility for the show once it's open, who um, is often engaged to, to go back and check up on it and also potentially involved in future versions of the show should it go elsewhere and that was Max Narula 
who was associate in London and then he was actually pro the programmer on, on Broadway because okay. we, I wanted to have a um I was just one knew the show to come with me to Broadway and he's an excellent programmer as well but I also wanted an American local to be the associate who knew the way that everything works there and was also local to look after the show because it's quite a different culture isn't it the, the culture of making theatre on Broadway is very very different to, yeah, to London it is and also we had an assistant night designer who was Tamika Passan who we spoke to Earlier yeah. on this podcast, um, yeah. and she was fantastic. I'm calling the follow spots and looking after all that side of things. I mean, you had four, how many follow spots did you have? Four follow spots. Four, and then production electricians, of course, as well. You had you've got a team of people who are there to install everything and then keep everything working and and uh, and make any changes that you might instigate. We, yeah, we had a structural production electrician who's in charge of basically making all our drawings come to life, making sure everything works, making sure that everything's plugged up and working and um, in the right place in the theatre and then for the ongoing maintenance of light. And they have a team of people, normally a team of freelancers who help put it into the theatre for the first time. And then we have a crew who run the show every night. So we have someone who operates the lighting desk and stays with the show every night and a team of follow-up operators and stage electricians who look after um, the lights that are on stage and check the focus and smoke machines and basically keep the whole thing looking as good as it should be. And all this, before we even start talking about the rest of the technical and creative teams how many people do you think are involved in a show like tina Just i do know i mean go and, go and have a look at the back of a program it's the list of names is extraordinary because yeah i think I mean, it's probably a couple of hundred at least it depends how far you expand it because obviously there are the people who are involved in making the show who are running the show every night and then the additional people who come in to create the show for the first time um and build the set and then if you expand outside the theater then of course you have set builders and wardrobe um you know costume makers and shoemakers and scenic artists and then if you go beyond that we're into marketing people and lighting sound video hire companies and other suppliers yeah it expands further and further and further it's a each show musicians composers um there's a massive army of people involved in that and video content creators as well as video designers the list is endless it's going yeah. on and on and Wigs, I would imagine... wig makers yeah just look at basically look at back of the program there's a long long list of names all whom have a props very significant role exactly our staff i would imagine that all of this is a far cry from the early days of your career could you just talk a little bit about where where it all began for you do you come from a theater family no not really um my parents took me to theater maybe once a year if that's we sort of if there we I grew up in Wolverhampton where there was a grand theatre and if there was an interesting play on we might go or we might or maybe we go to the occasional Christmas panto or something like that but I didn't really have sort of passionate theatre going parents who, who sort of took us very regularly as a matter of course um and we did go on trips to London occasionally and I remember seeing Starlight Express as a young teenager or maybe even before I was a teenager and then a little bit later on um Miss Saigon the original one lit by David Hersey which kind of blew oh, wow. me away at the time um little did I know that 25 years later I'd be there um doing my version of lighting on a new version of the show so it was on your radar but it wasn't something that your folks took particularly seriously no I think I, th I think they enjoyed it and it was a good mm. thing to do but it certainly wasn't um, it certainly wasn't something at that stage that I even really knew about as a potential career. I was in a couple of school plays. I gave my Mr. Bumble in Oliver, which was um, it's a pretty horrific and terrifying experience. My line of um, more. Uh, <laughs> never before as a boy wanted more. That was, um, that was about the, my only contribution to acting, I think, which is probably best never spoken about again. Um, but I kind of liked... 
I kind of like being part of making a show. Yeah. Um, and I sort of discovered the fun of that at school, I guess. And then I discovered that there were some people who weren't actually on stage, but were needed to hand props out. Or I got to quite early on in my time at secondary school, I got to volunteer to do theatre stuff. I did quite a lot of sound to start with. I did quite a lot of cutting up Revox tapes um, in the way that Chris Shutt described to us, actually. I did a, mm. I did a bit of that. And then I'd, I sort of saw the people doing lighting. I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. And spent a long time cutting out bits of colour and putting them in lights and, and that kind of thing. And then eventually you know, got to do the operate the lighting desk and but you didn't go to train it did you you went what did you go to study at university uh, i did geography at university geography okay so you were very much not you're very much not considering theater as a career option no but actually by then i had actually met a life designer um david taylor he was life designer who also was a consultant at theater projects and I knew david. Yeah, yeah um i was introduced to him and in my year off between school and university i sort of went and hung out with him a bit in um at the shaw theater in london where he was lighting a production of thomas sir thomas moore and then I thought, ah, now this is really interesting. This is what Life Signer does. And I, under- I started understanding how lighting can be part of the process of making a show and how can- lighting can really contribute to a show visually. Mm. So I went to Oxford kind of having had that experience of seeing a real Life Signer in action and then sort of volunteered to go and help with as much student theatre as I could and quite quickly mm. got the opportunity to light student shows because I knew like 1% more than <laughs> of, of something. I knew, I vaguely knew what a light was and I'd sort of seen what lighting could do. So I was really interested in playing around with it. And I basically got the opportunity to play around with lighting for three years. And you got a taste for the, the backstage atmosphere, it sounds to me. I mean, this is something that's quite common to a lot of people we've spoken to, isn't it? That they, They've abandoned the, uh, the idea of being on stage quite early on, but there's something intoxicating and magical about backstage. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there is. And it's a, it's a, I guess it's being a team of people with a common goal of getting a show on and the enjoyment of working together to make that happen and relying on each other to make that happen. And that kind of combination, I think, in lighting of something quite creative, but also achieving it through something sort of technical. I kind of enjoyed that. I can't draw or paint or, but I found that I could use lights and colour to make pictures I enjoyed on stage. And I think I've always enjoyed having one one foot sort of on the technical side of it like even in even nowadays in, in technical rehearsals I enjoy the fact that I'm on on headsets listening to all the backstage conversations but also having a direct conversation with the director and the designer in the auditorium and looking at the the whole thing and so that sort of combination of harnessing technology to make the make the pictures is something yeah. that I think I've always enjoyed. So presumably in the early days, one thing led to another. You were doing some work at university on student shows and yeah. the, and then you started out in earnest along a path of a career in lighting design. Yeah. So, I mean, the student shows basically took over my life. I mean, I think I did 50 or 60 shows while I was there of different scales, um, culminating in shows in, you know, in the professional theatre in the Oxford Playhouse where the students got to do a few shows a year. So I was sort of lighting in a professional level theatre as a student and also because I was interested in it um I volunteered to crew at the Playhouse Theatre so I actually started earning money working on the crew for example I was flying I was number two flyman for Panto there for a couple of years and I did some follow spotting and I helped with get-ins and get-outs both on the stage crew and on the lighting crew and I learned a lot um I because seeing professionals in action doing their job properly is very very different from a bunch of students kind of making it all up and so Linda Clayton who was the chief electrician at the time um 
was fantastic. She basically didn't let get, let me get away with anything. She just drummed into me how to do things properly, looking after shows coming in and looking at interpreting a lighting plan and rigging lights and measuring measurements and everything. She taught me how to draw a section. She taught me how to work how how borders work. She taught me so much just while being there and being interested. And I learned so much just on the job by learning from her and her team's sort of professional experience, as mm-hmm. well as just then going away to a student theatre and kind of making it all up myself. Those formative stages uh, must inform even the way you approach a project like Tina, even now. I guess so. I think it taught me to work quite efficiently, perhaps. Mm. In that, as a student, I was, you know, I, <laughs> my week was um, Saturday night, do a get out, Sunday, do a load in, um, and probably focus. Monday, finish focusing, plot some lighting cues. Monday afternoon, start technical rehearsal with the cast carry on through Tuesday Tuesday afternoon dress Tuesday night open that show Wednesday Thursday Friday go to a couple of lectures write some essays have a tutorial and then go and watch run-throughs of the rehearsals for the next week's show and draw a lighting plan (laughs) and then um and then be ready to basically turn around that lighting plug over uh, over the weekend with a new rig for the show I was doing the following week and basically I went from week to week to week like that so I learned I guess what I did learn was how to efficiently watch rehearsals and have conversations with directors and how to assimilate information and how to use the time watching rehearsals to piece together a lighting design in my head so that I go into a theatre with an idea of what it's going to look like. Yeah, Presumably that's second nature to you now. Yeah, absolutely. But I think I do imagine the lighting in my mind as I'm watching it, making cues and editing them in my imagination. And I write little notes to remind me of what I was thinking of, normal little scribbles. And I suppose that, is the information I then take into the technical rehearsals and the focus session. Um, We're going to get onto that, that process um, a little bit later on, but um, just before we leave your early years, um, could you just describe a little bit uh, what your experience was of the first, having decided to be a lighting designer? How did you, how did you find your first few years out as it were? Well, you asked about significant moments. I'd been offered a job after leaving after finishing at Oxford which was basically to be the sort of student drama rep for a year so I would have been sort of running one of the student theatres and I hadn't said yes but I was sort of thinking I'd probably do that because I was interested in working in theatre and it wasn't really lighting but it was still a theatre job and maybe and it was sponsored by Cameron Macintosh and I got interviewed by Cameron and I thought yeah it'd be good to go and do that job and I was actually on, um, just arrived in Edinburgh to do a, a season at the Fringe and I got a call sort of forwarded from my parents to where I was staying um, from Ben Ormerod, who um, is a lighting designer who I met when I was a student at the National Student Drama Festival and I spent a bit of time shadowing him and he phoned and asked me if I wanted to take one of his shows on tour for English Touring Theatre and do relights and so I then had this thing of oh do I want to go and do this sort of eight-week contract relighting Ben Ormerod's lighting for a tour or do I want to go and have a definite year's job you know, running one of the student theatres um, at Oxford, and I chose to do the lighting job, much to the dismay of many people who thought I was committing career suicide. But it was the best thing I could have done to be a lighting designer because I carried on lighting fringe shows and, and student shows and things for a couple of years, but I also earned money doing relights. So basically that's taking someone else's lighting design on tour 
and recreating it week after week in potentially different venues of different sizes with different lights and different positions. So you have to kind of tour the idea and make sure the essence of the light design is looking the same, but you have to mentally just sort of adjust to different kinds of equipment. Is there a better education? I don't think so. I think it's fantastic. And I and every week I had to focus a rig with a different crew and every week I had to make a lot of decisions, but it was someone else's ideas I had to recreate. So I, so it was a really, really good exercise in terms of how do I solve these problems? How do I juggle this? Mm-hmm. It taught me so much about lighting, about managing crew, about managing time and about keeping, you know, what's important about a look, what's important about an idea, what what's the one thing I need to have, even though all the kit's different to make this you know, moment work. And also it taught me a lot about dealing with directors on tour and mm-hmm. um, stage management and how to keep the, the essence of a show the same while obviously some compromises may or may not have to be made. I guess that was my sort of professional lighting education really, it was, was um, doing relights for English Tommy Theatre and lots of stage company, sort of mid-scale touring. And it's then, the way, isn't it? really yeah, and I was very lucky because English Touring Theatre were super supportive of me and my career. And after a few years of doing relights, they invited me to be a lighting designer for them for a couple of shows. And that led on to also stage company, and so sort of I emerged into you know, lighting mid-scale touring shows and then it carried on from there, really. Yeah. And, and also, it should be said, working for someone like Ben Ormerod, who is very thoughtful about his process. Absolutely. I learned so much from him. And I think probably one of the unique things that I got to do at the time. And I think um, and actually Paulie Constable had a similar experience because she was Ben's associate and so was near Austin and Ben didn't like us touring numbers we basically toured descriptions of the cues because in those mm. days we didn't tour a rig we just used whatever lights the theatre had yeah so you would be creating the spirit of the lighting yeah design. exactly so you'd write a description like 5k backlight at full balance from stage left with cross light fill if necessary yeah. from front of house stage right yeah it's broken down in more detail than that but basically you sort of wrote sort of tracking descriptions of what the lights are actually doing because you weren't touring your own rig there was no there was no, no just using whatever you found in the venue Exactly. And it meant that you were lighting what the show felt like rather than just kind of turning into the numbers. And of course, in those days, dimmers were so different as well that in one venue, a light at 30% was barely seen. In another venue, that same light in a dimmer at 30% would be incredibly bright. So you have so to do it by eye and by taste. And developing a, a, a visual memory. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you ever yearn for those days? Do you ever look back from the kind of dizzying heights of Broadway and just want to go and do a pub theatre? No. <laughs> I like, no, I do think I do, but I like that I get to do a variety of shows. I like that, I yes, I do do big Broadway shows and, and, and bigger shows than that, you know, sort of large scale um, arena um, concert tours and events and you know, big scale outdoor things as well. But I also really enjoyed, I mean, this year, one of the few shows I did this year before lockdown was Uncle Vanya um, in the West End at the um, Harold Pinter Theatre. And that was a much, much more stripped back kind of rig and a play and there weren't very many moving lights and I had to really think back to sort of traditional lighting design in a way and I really enjoyed that process and thinking through it and thinking what the essence of the scenes were so and that sort of challenged me in a in a different way from from the kind of the big scale musicals which are sometimes a bit more about the sort of the spectacle and scale so yeah I'm very lucky to have the variety but I don't think I want to go back and do a um a pub theatre show what do you James um there's something he- no, <laughs> I don't. But you know, there's there's there is something healthy about having uh, something to kick against. Do you know what I mean? I think when when you have a space that's really small or a budget that's very tiny, you just have, it relies on you have to rely on your ingenuity to make it work. And I feel that I have so much resource at my disposal these days that sometimes I 
I get carried away quite quickly and I have to be quite disciplined with myself to, to work out what exactly it is I need to do. It's a temptation yeah. to really throw everything at it until something sticks. And that was never an option when I was at the bush, for example. We had to try and figure out how to make it work in a tiny, tiny space. And sometimes it was the simplest of solutions that was the most effective. And it was that, that felt like a really good grounding. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's true. But also you need to remember that when you, you, you might have a massive lighting roof, but sometimes you don't have to, you don't have to use all the lights. I mean, at the no. same time, um, sometimes even though you might have 150 lights sitting above the stage, the best look is the look that only has one of them on. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Do you think the design principles that you apply to musical like Tino are the same as say an opera or a piece of theater or, or are you employing a whole different language or is it like different dialects of the same language i think it's probably better to say different dialects of the same language i think it all informs each other i guess in that big musicals are complicated because they normally have many many scenes and many locations and a lot of story and a lot of action yeah. and and big sort of musical dance numbers but you could, if you break them down it's a series of small plays, I suppose, or small scenes. or mm. And that's why they're kind of complicated and cue and they often need a large lighting room. They sort of feel overwhelming until you break them down into small moments. And then you look at each moment and go, okay, what should this moment feel like? And then you're going back to the same principles as you would for a play or an opera or yeah. a piece of music. Okay, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what those principles are, because keeping Tina in mind... What do you consider your responsibilities to be in terms of lighting design? What do you set out to achieve? What uh, criteria are we trying to fulfil when we when we design lighting for a show? I think that I find it very hard to unpick what or how or why I I make lighting decisions. I make the choices based on conversations with the rest of the team and experience and my own ideas and taste. And and I guess a lot of it is gut reaction to what's happening in front of me. Um, yeah. But I don't know how to generalize, really. Well, let's not generalize. Let's talk in. Let's talk in terms of specifically in terms of Tina. Then, um, well, let's go right back to the beginning of the process, if that's useful. Because the first thing that happens, of course, is you land the job. <laughs> Yay! Exactly. Uh, <laughs> one of our <laughs> favorite bits. And <laughs> absolutely the best bit. <laughs> and then, am I free? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Even yes. better. So, when were you first involved? What was the first stage of the process for you? It, it was kind of a job interview, I suppose. But I, I first of all had a conversation with Tally, the producer, and then I went around and had a chat with Philida, who's the director. And it's those sort of sounding each other out, sort of interviews slash informal chats, sort of glass of wine slash coffee, whatever kind of conversations. And I suppose that's when I first got involved. I first heard about the show, and heard about how they were planning to do the show. So I did. I knew a bit about it, and then I got the job, and was really excited. And then I suppose the next stage was actually was was meeting up with. I think I met up with Philida first, and went round to her house and had supper, and we just had a long chat about everything and everything. Partly about the show, just partly about ourselves. Just it was a sort of getting to know you process, which is really useful and sort of quite often talking around the show rather than directly about the show. I guess sounding each other out a bit, sounding each other's tastes, trying to find out how we how we worked, that kind of thing. Because um, you had not worked together at all at that point. No, no, we hadn't. Um, and then I met up with Mark Thompson separately and um, went to a studio and looked through the model. And she's the set designer. Set and costume designer. Who I'd met a few times but never actually worked with either. Mm. Um, then started talking in more detail with him about how lighting may may work with the set. And at that sort of stage, especially if somebody who had worked with before, you're sort of hedging around each other a bit because I was sort of thinking this needs to have strong 
strong lighting input and sort of moments of kind of what should feel like real kind of rock and roll concert lighting and Mark's that was very very clean and elegant it's and then because the whole play is a is a memory play we see her just about to go on stage at the beginning of the show and then the rest of the evening is fragments of her memory of her life that that we then show the set design itself has to be very very fluid because we move from scene to scene very quickly so mark sort of ingenious designed all these little elements that just gave you a suggestion of where we were a a, a scenic detail in this sort of beautiful framed environment and then lighting fills in the rest of the information was it immediately apparent to you what you would need to deliver from that first model box meeting or no I think I had to sort of go away and think about it and I mean what was great is Mark does very very beautiful model boxes and um and you know, very detailed photos of, of mm. each scene or at least an idea of each scene because of course on shows like that from the first design through to what actually arrives on stage at press night goes through many different variations yeah. Lots, yeah. You know, the, the script changes songs change the whole staging of things change but also the need for certain elements of scenery changes or an understanding of how the set actually works and how the people are presented within the show so of course there's a there's a big old process before to get to the final result you also because you're working with new team it's not immediately obvious what their tastes are yeah exactly Uh, and how did you communicate to one another your ideas about something as ephemeral as lighting i think with philida we didn't ever really talk directly about lighting in terms of i think this moment looks like this and we talked around the show about what the show should feel like and about what the cast were feeling and what the audience should be looking at. Scene is, a, is an interesting one because there's there's so many different types of scene in the show which somehow all need to be drawn together into one cohesive thing because there's Tina as a performer at different times of her career, so spanning through her, you know, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and sort of it ends with her doing a sort of big, a big stadium show at the sort of peak of her success in 1988. And so we see her as a performer. We also see have scenes which are dialogue scenes which are like sort of mini bit mini moments of plays with these suggestions of sceneries we also have um scenes that have um singing in so it's all Tina's songs that Tina Turner sang but some of them are used to move the story on a sort of um it's almost like a book song and others are kind of pure concert moments to sort of reflect her performing and then we have other scenes which are her inner mind, her, her inner thoughts. So they're certainly they're very abstracted scenes, which are, which are musical, but they might have many things happening at the same time, or we're sort of things are transitioning around her. So the, the the whole thing was. I mean, it's very clear the whole thing's a memory play, and the whole thing was going to. I mean, Tina hardly leaves the stage for the entire show, and all her costume changes are pretty much on stage. And you know, we see her go through her life, and all everything happens kind of around her. And I think the whole thing is supposed to have that sensation of you know, flashback and memory and fragments and and how you, you know, how how you put things together in your mind, which gave us a kind of freedom to be very theatrical with it. So the lighting rig had to obviously tie all this together. So I need I knew I needed a rig that was going to deliver the impression of concerts, and I knew I needed a rig that would deliver perhaps the feeling of a concert in the sixties and the feeling of the concert in the eighties. And of course, as you know, lighting technology. And the amount of lighting used in concerts changed hugely through that. Yeah, that was, I was going to ask you what the implications were for the the, your, the equipment that you chose. Yeah, well, I have, I, quite early on, I, I remember sitting in the fill of this kitchen with a glass of wine talking about, did we want to try and recreate that faithfully? Are we trying to do an accurate um, version of, of Tina singing with Ike? Yeah, I've, I found some clips of Tina performing at different stages in her career. And looking at the lighting now, it's kind of, 
well, I guess you could say boring in a way. It was very, very different style of concert lighting yeah. in those days to, to what yeah. a modern audience is used to seeing now. And I think we both quickly decided that we didn't... You know, Tina sang Proud Mary, for example, for you know, much of her career. And how many times she sung that song and how many different lighting rigs has she been under and how many different places in the world has she sung it? So because it's a memory play, of course, there's, she's not she's singing that song. She could be singing that song from... Anyway. remembering any time and so you, if you're we couldn't be really literal about it and that gave us sort of freedom to to use modern light technology you can't dismiss the expectations of a modern day audience either i mean if you if you did if you were faithful to the original design and you just had a handful of parkans flashing on and off it, it wouldn't have the impact that a modern audience would expect no exactly and you sort of want to have the sort of visceral energy that a, that a modern concert would have at times mm. but equally i wanted to give myself some sort of rules in that if we were early in Tina's career I didn't want to have for concerts I didn't want to have moving lights visibly moving and I wanted to use colour palettes of that may be achievable with you know parkans and gel rather than you know super saturated modern moving lights that we have now and so I sort of restricted the um restricted how I use the rig so I use modern a modern rig and I use modern techniques but I let what we did grow through the show so by the end we do the kind of whole full singing dancing moving lights and everything um you know, final concert but mm. leading up to that I've tried to be a bit more restrained of how we how we use the rig so so you start in a very rural uh, naturalistic is it Tennessee where she was born yeah in Bush, Tennessee yeah and you're barely punctuating the music at all with lighting actually at that stage even though there are some quite big numbers yeah and then by the end of the show it's uh all, all, you know it's out and out uh, concert yeah absolutely and, and and the show does that and that's why the band is we see elements of the band on stage throughout, but it's only at the very end we reveal a full band on stage. Yeah. And again, you want the audience to have that sort of that feeling of excitement of a, of a big band on stage playing incredible music and the sort of the energy of a concert. Um, and that that was definitely a deliberate choice. But it's interesting because uh, we we start in in Nutbush, Tennessee, as you said, and it's a sunny day with a church service under a tree, and you sort of think, well, what? How how do you how do you connect the idea of nature and the idea of rock concerts? You know, what, what do they have in common in terms of lighting? And you think, well, actually, in concerts, fans of light um, coming out from you know, one side or the other through smoke gives a, is a really dynamic concert look. So lights that can do that are going to be great in the concert. But actually in nature as well, some of the most beautiful things you see in nature is when you get um, fans of light coming through clouds. Um, and actually it's a very, in a way, it's a similar look. So actually, so... The same lights that deliver a concert later are actually delivering you know, beams of sunlight um, through the, the Nutbush congregation under a tree. And that, that sort of directional feeling of light, um, which I which I love for naturalistic lighting, naturalistic in inverted commas, you know, um, can, can absolutely be the same thing that you then use later on in the mm. concert. Because obviously we've got 57 scenes or something in that show and you can't have a different lighting rig for every scene, even though each of those scenes are in a different location and some of them are in a kitchen and some of them are in a, you know, doing a concert on, in a stadium and some of them are in a street, you know. And so it's a, it's a sort of weird process because you go through the show thinking about how I'm going to light each moment and then you have to find common themes. And I think what's something interesting about concert lighting is that you have to think as much about what the beams look like in the air as, the, as what as they're what doing they on stage. Yeah. But equally, that's not necessarily the same way the theatre lighting works. So sort of joining those two things together was, was really interesting. So you go into rehearsals with quite, it sounds like quite a strong idea of how things might pan out. Um, but we know that Philida's rehearsal room is, is very um, 
fertile, shall we say, that there yeah. are a great many things that change. Um, we should just maybe talk a little bit about rehearsals for, for the uninitiated. It, it, it's There is a stage, of course, where everybody's just in their civvies uh, and it's all about the performance. It's about learning the words, developing the choreography, learning the music and the blocking, which is essentially where everybody stands at any given moment. Yeah, they're interesting. I think some directors... Um, focus on um, blocking more than others. I think Fillers doesn't really. Fillers is more interested in how um, how the cast interact with each other, what the focus of the stage is, and how the energy of the um, of their interaction appears. And the blocking almost happens nat- naturally by developing that, rather than saying you stand here, you stand here, kind of thing. So it's interesting to see all that evolve. Did you attend rehearsals much? I did, probably more than more than some shows because it's a new play and things were changing, and I just wanted to be in the room and being part of it and what I did was I spent quite a lot of time in rehearsals and in a room next to the rehearsal room I set up a, a lighting desk and a system called WYSIWYG which is a way of visualizing lighting and I had Warren who's the lighting programmer so we were doing a little bit of sort of trying lighting ideas out on the computers um in between rehearsals so I sort of pop between the two and you know, give Warren some ideas and notes to work on and he sort of develops some ideas and then I go and watch the rehearsal and then come back and so for some of the numbers um, particularly at the end of the show, which is a very complicated QE sequences. So we started working on those um, on sort of visualizers before we actually got on stage because I knew that the the tech time to deal with that would be relatively limited. How much survived to the final cut? It's hard to know. I think some of the I think some of the key points and timings are there, and there's certainly some moments that are absolutely things that um, like what's love got to do with it. There's some little um, tunks and parkans around the outside. Um, to following the synth chords and they're exactly what Warren programmed in the rehearsal room I think they haven't hardly changed at all. How much did your initial ideas change though as rehearsals progressed did, did, did things become apparent and did things uh they became develop they developed a lot in the tech because actually uh, when we were in the room we sort of started understanding what the language of the show was and what the language of the theatre was and particularly what the language of the um, the, the portals were so yeah. we've got these four different portals that fly to different heights and I think in the original sort of set drawings we sort of imagine they move a couple of times during the show there's like a high version and an angle version and a low version and which relates to the you know, the scale of the room that they're in but we discovered how much how beautifully they flew and how elegant they looked and also how significant they were in changing the focus of the stage so if you really wanted to draw someone into an intimate moment you can close them down really low they did a lot more movement than they originally Even expected. Yeah. And of course, with the headers moving, that has a huge implication on the lighting because we, we decided we wanted to keep the lights hidden unless we were in a kind of concert moment. So of course, if you move a header down low, the lights can no longer see the stage. So we had to, mm-hmm. all the lighting bars had to fly. And so when the headers moved, the lighting bars moved, which was, became a really exciting, interesting tool because it meant I could have, you know, the lights could move up and down, which meant the angles of lights I could achieve with each position could change for different scenes. And I think that's the thing that really evolved um, during the Just tech. Give us an idea of the point at which you discovered that then. Was that once you were in the theatre? Yeah, we, we knew the head was going to go to different heights and we'd, and we'd sort of prepped some yeah. different things in advance. But actually when we got into the theatre... Um, Mark Thompson was with us, and we, I guess it was a dry tech stage, so that's when we go through the show and sort of do a rough version of all the um, the scenic looks, so set yeah. the head of heights and put the scene yeah. in the right place and chairs and tables and props in the right place and then you know, mark it all up and then move on to the next one. And Mark Thompson was there with us, and, and he was looking at it, and, and that's when he really started playing with the shape of the presentation on stage. And I was so pleased that from very, very early on, I sort of insisted that the lighting bars all had to be automated and they all had to be able to fly live during the show because if we hadn't done that, it would have been a disaster. Yeah, so you'd built in some flexibility that you were able to take advantage of. 
Yeah, well, I knew that if the headers were going to fly at all, and even, and we knew they're going to fly a bit, whatever happens, that yeah. and I, if we wanted to keep the lights hidden most of the time, which we did, then the lighting bars were going to have to fly. And luckily, Sasha, who was the production manager in London, sort of got that and was really supportive of that because it's a huge expense automating. We had seven lighting bars overhead and automating all of those. And traditionally, they just hang in the same place for the entire show. And when we first went to Broadway, they thought we were joking when we said that the seven, all seven lighting bars fly and they've got about 20 different deads each. The complexity of it, it was really hard to explain until, of course, we got into the nitty-gritty of doing it. Then, of course, they'd put the team onto it and it was all fine. But it somehow got lost in translation, the complexity of the flying system of the headers and the lighting bars and how crucial it was that they could all move to different places. Yeah. And I think potentially with a different um, production manager or a different team or a different sort of attitude to the show to start with, then I may not have got those flying bars, which would have mm. basically screwed us up really badly. So I was very happy to have that. Before we leave the rehearsal room completely, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, I mean, you've talked about this discovery process that I, I completely understand, which is when you're sitting in the theatre with the actual set in front of you and people yeah. can see in real life what, what is actually possible. But before that, how much can you do to prepare? I mean, you can draft and redraft a plan, obviously, but what else can you do? Yeah, so, the, I mean, the, the plan was way, it was, was way before rehearsal. So the plan had to be about working with the information I had. And did, there wasn't anything during rehearsals. There was no moment where you went, oh, we've really got to rethink this. I don't think I changed much significantly on the plan no. during rehearsals. I sort of was questioning it all the time, but I sort of, especially with the WYSIWYG model there as well, we could try things out. And with the flexibility to move the, the lights up and down with the, the borders and things, I sort of knew we'd be okay. There's something we added during the tech. We added a bar of moving lights right up stage to make the concert feel a bit more epic. But no, I think the lighting plan itself didn't change much from when it was signed off, which is sort of way before rehearsal started. I guess what did change in rehearsals, it's... You can you can read a script and you can listen to music. Um, and, and of course, I was listening to Tina Turner's version of songs, which was the music we had. And I was listening to you know, reading the script that we had on paper. But they were just two separate things, really. And actually, the process of seeing the real cast sort of become the characters and start telling the story and get into, into the skin of the words and things, just suddenly the whole show makes sense in a totally different way. And also the way they perform the songs and the way... The, the you know, dialogue slides into music, slides into songs and all that sort of thing. That's something you really pick up on rehearsals. And that's where I start thinking of where all the cue points are going to be. And in my mind, I'm sort of lighting the show and sort of thinking, does this number need to be busy? Is it quite simple? Is it stripped back? What are we focusing on? Is it, do we just need to set an atmosphere and the cast telling the story or do we want to give some energy from lighting? And so you're kind of questioning all these things all the time. While you're in rehearsals, do you keep, do you start compiling a cue sheet? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was just about to say, actually. Because so, so I start scribbling cues um, in in my script where you know, all the plays, all the times I want lights, cha- light changes to happen. And then in the last week of rehearsals, I sat down with Sarah Seymour, who's the, the DSM, the person calling okay. the lighting cues. And we, there's, I think it's 700 and something cues. And we just basically sat down over two evenings and um, we're over a gin and tonic and basically put all the cues in the book. And she's one of those brilliant DSMs who gets it musically. So I can say I want it to land here and she'll actually know where she actually has to call go so that the thing that you want to happen happens yeah. at the right place. And She's also a great person to have conversations with about how you get things to land. And what's fantastic with, with um, a DSM like that is when you go into the tech, if they know what your intentions are, they're already mentally working out the sequences of how they need to call things. And so I went into the tech with basically all the cues in the book and a blank cue list in the 
in the lighting desk, plus a whole bunch of stuff we made in WYSIWYG, which we could then try out and then bring into the main queue system if we wanted to. I mean, none of that works unedited. It's a skeleton on which you can sort of hang the flesh of the show, isn't it, to start with? Yeah, exactly. And it means that when I'm in the theatre, I don't need to have a, a script and a queue list because I've actually got a scrolling live queue list in front of me on the um, the screen from the lighting desk. So rehearsals finish, and yeah. then we shift the focus to the theatre itself. Now, during rehearsals, normally what's been happening is that the, the lighting and the set has been installed in the theatre, ready for the company to arrive and start rehearsals on stage. And we enter this phase that you and I both favor that the technical rehearsal which is when everybody decamps to the theater and um all the technical elements of the show are added to the mix lighting and uh automation video first of all can you describe what we would have seen if we'd wandered into the back of the stores during (laughs) echo tina there's usually a kind of shanty town of desks covered in technology and a sea of angle poised lamps and laptops and monitors where the audience normally sits right yeah, I guess I, I keep mainly talking about the London version because that's when we first made the show, but it was very similar for, for Broadway. But in London, we were particularly lucky because the theatre had just been refurbished and there were no seats in the stalls. They'd all been um, taken out to be replaced. And right. so we asked them to leave the seats out. And so everyone basically had a desk and a swivel chair. Every department has an area in the stalls with the equipment they need to, to run their bit. So working from the back, I suppose, the sound department seems traditionally be at the back and they're there mm. with um, the sound mixing desks and all the computers for making sound effects and things. And then in front of them with the video department and that's a video programmer and video designer. Both these things look like something out of um, ground control, don't they? They're just... Yeah, like yeah, it's extraordinary. The, num- the, the number of screens it takes to, to, to make a, a large-scale musical now is, is unbelievable. I mean, going back to my early days of English touring theatre, where you'd be lucky if you had one screen that told you what, you, what lighting queue you were in. It's now yeah. monitors after monitors after monitors, all showing various bits of information for people. So you've got the, the you know, sound world and then video world, all with, with loads of screens and different information. Video also have a couple of uh, animators who are sort of actually making the artwork for for the video projection and then my my world is lighting world so there's me with my computer and some screens and then lighting operator associate lighting designer assistant lighting designer and then there's um stage manager the dsm was out front in the stalls as well so sarah had her monitors and her screens and everything set up and then there's a row of directors designers choreographers music department production manager producers so basically Everyone moves their office into the stalls. And so on a show like that, there's loads of desks and loads of people. It's quite a thing. I always think it must be quite strange for actors actually looking at that because you're basically looking at a massive temporary office that looks a bit like mission control or something um, rather than a normal audience. And of course, everybody communicating on on headsets. Yes. So we're all wearing headsets, which is a, a system by which we can all either talk to everyone or talk to individuals pretty much. I mean, I typically would have four channels on my headset, one of which is the stage management and show caller. So you're hearing all the cues going. I'd have one to talk directly to lighting um, programmers and assistants because we talk a lot of numbers and we kind of talk constantly and no one else wants to listen to us. <laughs> there's another follow spots and there's another one, I don't know, creative chat or something so you can talk to other um you know other designers and things and each channel can be isolated or or muted or- exactly and then there's and there's loads of other channels like stage management will have their own channel and automation and sound and everyone so you don't have to listen to everything you set up a little base camp what yeah. do you have on what do you have on your production desk i have two screens from the lighting desk one of which shows me the cue list and one of which shows me I could just flick between various things. Normally I have a magic sheet, which is like a little map of the theatre with symbols to represent the lights. 
a schematic rather than, than a schematic the, rather than a scale drawing but also i can normally turn that screen into something that's showing just what what level each channel is at and there's a few different magic sheets normally set up so i normally flick between those do you still have a paper plan uh, i do have a paper plan definitely because i like seeing how the whole thing fits together yeah um, but i've nearly always got something on top of it i also have my own laptop and a notebook and a pen and a coffee cup score do you work from the score or do you work from uh, an opera definitely right. um I do have the score, though generally in a musical tech, if I've got cues already in the desk beforehand, I tend not to refer to it much during the tech. I tend to use the score mostly in the rehearsal room. In preparation, yeah. In preparation. I don't have time to follow the score because I'm too busy looking at the stage. So I've done the homework to mean that and set things up to hopefully mean I don't have to. Obviously, if anyone to rethink a sequence or add a sequence, I've got the score there to refer to. But I tend not to be following along as we're going along. I trust because I don't need to because there's an amazing stage management team who are doing that. So uh, this is the moment when everybody is collaborating. You have the entire creative team present. Yes. Um, do you, you've spoken a little bit about your interaction, your relationship with set designer and director. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's ongoing during the tech. Yeah, very much so. And what was great, the the, the best tech rooms are ones where it's very easy to get around. Because there's a, there's a version where everyone gets stuck behind their desks and can't really get to each other. And being able to just nip around and ask a quick question to the director or designer be able to pop around and say something in your ear or i mean video designer as well because you know video and lights it's all lights and you have to work together so yeah. being sat just across the corridor from jeff and be able to who was the jeff stark who was a video designer being able to have a quick direct conversation with each other or go and see something on his screen or he can pop around and ask me something meant yeah. that it's very easy to sort of interact and i should say that um pretty much every time i've mentioned lighting while talking about tina i should really be saying lighting and video because the two designs are pretty seamlessly inter, interlinked and yeah. um, relate very much to each other. The back wall of the set is a LED video wall on which Jeff has got content much of the time. And there's an interesting question of taste to work out yeah. in terms of how realistic or how photographic the content should be. Because if it feels too much like a cinema or too real, it somehow undermines the abstraction of what's happening in front. And Jeff worked very closely with Mark and with me to balance the elements of the set and lighting and video content so that the whole thing felt it worked together as one. Yeah. Especially, I think, in some of the less naturalistic scenes, um, for example, the higher sequence or the sequence at the end of Act One when Tina's um, running across a dual carriageway to escape from Ike. That way, those, those scenes are very much um, led by video in a way in terms of what everything else on stage is doing. Um, and the same with choreography, you know, um, Anthony Van Last, who I have worked with a couple of times before, actually, so I, I, I knew reasonably well. Dancing and lighting, they're all basically taking the same cue points to some extent. So yeah. we have a lot of common ground um, and a lot of the staging and the, the dance numbers are often the busiest and most cue sequences in the show. So while they're spacing the dancers on stage, which is part of the, part of the process of the technical, I'm tending, I'm trying to light them and you know get the lights in the right place for where they're putting them. And so having a, a good dialogue with the choreographer is, is really essential to try and sort of get through those moments as sort of efficiently as possible. And also to get the right energy for them so that I'm really you know, highlighting what the dancing is doing. Yes, because you're, I mean, the, obviously the choreography takes its lead from the music, uh, as you do. Yeah. Uh, and then you're... you're inextricably bound up with video because Jeff's work is, uh, as you say, it's a source of light in the end. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, exactly. Um, so it all has to connect. And the best text... And sound. One, and sound. I mean, God, of course, sound's driving the whole thing. And it's really interesting how the mix can change your feeling of what a song should be like. Like, mm. 
the same song you can hear a version that's sort of full of percussion and energy and that makes you feel like it's have a certain type of lighting or the same song that could all be dialed right down and it becomes a much more sort of lyrical vocal thing and that might you make you feel like you're doing a very different kind of lighting maybe something much more simple so how the mix works and how different instruments come out to the audience has an enormous impact on whether the lighting you're imagining feels right yeah. because having heard recordings and things before in the rehearsal room what you actually hear on stage often feels very different and then it's important to react to that mm. and of course to remember that everyone is um is still developing things so i might react to a sound thing only to discover the sound then change because they they've also decided to change it in whatever way so having that communication going is really important yeah. and of course the other thing the other department who quite often i think get slightly um pushed to the side of the tech is is um costumes wigs and makeup because they are concentrating on exactly what all the cast are wearing what they look like what their hair is like and i'm often focusing on uh, you know trying to look at the detail of that but also looking at the big picture and the same light that's creating the beam in the air that's lighting the floor in a certain color is also potentially backlighting the wig and i have to think to make sure that that's not doing something weird to the color of the wigs um and so you're sort of balancing conversations with all these people who are looking at certain details and just keeping communication going to make sure you're not missing anything. And there are some remarkable wigs in that show. The, the wig plot is extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have costume and wigs most of the time? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much throughout the wow. tech. Um, that's a luxury, isn't it? Because I, I know certainly working in opera, that's you, you, you so rarely get to see the company and chorus in, in the costumes that they're going to be wearing. Yeah, it is. I mean, in in theatre in the UK, we're very lucky because we do tend to have um, silly costumes and quite often um, full wigs and makeup for the the whole technical. Especially at a show that involves so many costume changes and so many wig changes and so many makeup changes as well. Part of the technical rehearsal is making sure that people can get those costume changes done um, in mm. time and. The costumes are so important. But they really often tie the composition together, don't they? Oh, absolutely. You can't really tell if the lighting's working without costume. Absolutely not. And it bears repeating, doesn't it, that, that we often experience this strange feeling like it's not working because you're looking at acting companies standing in their own clothes on the set uh, and being quite despondent about it, actually. Mm. And then the, the following day, having made no changes to the lighting, the costumes arrive and it just makes everything come to life. Absolutely, because costume designers work really hard to compose pictures. They know who the focus of the show is and the, at each moment, so they, and they sort of imagine these costumes to all work together as an ensemble. And when you don't have that, you just have the people, you know, a bunch of people in jeans and T-shirts or whatever they happen to come in that day. <laughs> you, it's really hard to kind of understand the composition. And you can guarantee that the person you don't want to see particularly in the picture is the one who's wearing kind of bright white <laughs> pants or something. And and the and the, the lead cast members are sort of dressed head to toe in black and with a yeah. baseball cap on. So right. it's you know you're sort of going, this feels wrong. Why is it yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then and then of course it's all um you know put in costume and the, the staging sort of comes together and then you go, okay no, this this is all fine. There are two other people in the room that are absolutely crucial to to our jobs. Um, and on a show like Tina, there's there are a lot of cues. Uh, how important to you is your programmer? <laughs> the programmer is uh, completely important. I mean, they are totally part of the design team in my mind. Um, there's a version of programming a show where I'm literally just dictating channel and saying, you know, put this light at this level, no, up a bit, down a bit, whatever. Or there's a version of programming which you do with you know, sort of professional programmers we get to work with in the West End shows, where you're sort of saying, 
you know, almost describing looks and ways. It's almost going back to the um, English touring theatre mid-scale touring, sort of, you're sort of working in ideas. So you're, you're saying, you know, stick the backlight on over there and fan it out and um, stick it in our favourite blue colour. Mm, let's tweak that blue colour to this colour. And you're sort of basically having a conversation about it and then manipulating the, the lights with the lighting desk. It's kind of hard to describe um, exactly how we talk about well, it. it but it's, it's a collaborative, actually. It's a collaborative um, relationship, isn't it? Rather than they're not day twenty clerks. They're not. They're, no, not at all. They're sort of interpreting ideas, and they're and they're sort of putting, suggesting things to for me then to to edit, I suppose. So, um, and quite often I wiggle my fingers around to demonstrate what how I might want the moving lights to move or something, and they can look across at me and sort of see that, and then sort of program something for the lights to do and I can say yeah like that but a bit faster or a bit slower or can you fan it out a bit or what do you think of this so it's very much a collaboration um and I suppose in a way I'm editing their ideas it's I guess it's a bit like a director working with an actor in a way in that the actor's offering things up and the director's reacting and editing and and you know and um yeah, that's true I think that's some of the time it's a bit like that work in the programme and in, in that it's very much a, a conversation and you sort of rely on them to be able to be really, really good. So good at the computer bit of it that they're not even thinking about that. They're actually thinking about what it looks like and having a dialogue with me rather than having to think too much about what they're actually typing. Yeah, that the, the typing bit becomes sort of second nature to them when they're good. Mm-hmm. So that it is very much a kind of creative conversation. Yeah. And, and they're keeping their eyes on the stage as much as... As as yeah, they're, keeping, they're, they're looking at screens a lot more than I am because they have to, but they're also able to keep their eyes on the stage and see most of that. You know, they're generally touch typing on the keyboards. They're not looking at the keyboards. They're glancing at the screens and glancing at the stage and sort of, and what's, and also they're very good at sort of filling in gaps. So when, when everything grinds to a halt for whatever reason, and I might be down having a conversation with the creative team at the front or trying to work out how on earth we get this costume change done without seeing the scene change behind it or whatever conversation we're having, Programmers are very, very good at using grabbing those moments to fix a whole bunch of stuff that mm. hasn't been quite resolved. Or, mm. or you know, I can say, oh, can you just give a list of little jobs to do to set up for the next scene? And yeah, it's um, it's hard to describe how important they are. And <laughs> you you sort of take it for granted until you go and work um, without one of those sort of really experienced freelance programmers, and then suddenly you realise how much they do, how much creative freedom it gives you. It's a bit like having your hands tied behind your back. Yeah, exactly. Because you the 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 technology it means you're kind of removed from the detail of the technology. Someone's looking after all that for you, so mm. you have a much much more of a um, ideas led process rather yeah. than a technical nitty gritty process. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, ideas rather than numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And the other person who can make or break the lighting design is, of course, the DSM, who's the person who calls the show. I mean, actually calling not just lighting, but the cues for automation sound everything. Yeah. Um, they're kind of the pilot of the show, I think. <laughs> and if they get it wrong on a show like like Tina, it, it can be very obvious. And, and you know, if, if the, all the cues aren't exactly on the beat, it can be really frustrating. It's an extraordinary job. They have a huge number of cues to call, especially on a show like Tina where there's over 700 lighting cues to call. But also they have to do all the automation cues and they're looking after safety as well. Do we, you know, there's trap doors that open the floor all the time and they need to make sure that no one's standing on it when it opens. And so they have to... It's it's a super, um, super skillful job. And Tina was all so, some musicals are a click track, so that means that basically you can time everything to to the mu- the music always happens at the same time, um, 
and you can then organize the lighting cues to be triggered by the music essentially or to mm. trigger at the same time as the music on tina we were very keen from the beginning nick skilbick the musical director and i think the rest of the creative team were all adamant that the show should be live so that there's a certain fluidity to the show so it could have its own energy each night it's hard to imagine soul music being on a click track i mean that's just sort of isn't that totally counterintuitive well, well exactly that, that's the thing i mean you know, we're, we're trying to give the feeling of live performance and having it all completely sort of sterile and, and click tracked didn't feel yeah. like the right oh. idea so anyway it's not on click track it's all called so every little flash and 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 snap and button and all those lighting cues are actually called by a stage manager who's who's basically counting and saying go to anticipate when the lighting operator is actually going to hit the go button. And the other the other people we should mention um, who are, are absolutely crucial to the lighting on Tina are, are the follow spots. Yes. Now just describe briefly how you use follow spots uh, and how they how they fit into the lighting scheme as a whole. Yeah. So follow spots are, are um, I guess. Most people know, but it's basically a light with a human behind it who can point it at wherever they're told to, really. So point it at an actor, generally, and follow them around the stage. The classic sort of theatrical look is a, a hard-edge follow spot following a performer around the stage. In Tina, follow spots are pretty much the only front light of the entire show. Um, most of the rest of the light is either from the sides or from the back. So it's kind of a very sculptural light. And the follow spots are, I guess, they're there to focus on the storytelling Tina is obviously the story it's all around her so there's nearly always a follow spot on Tina and then there's normally a follow spot on the people that she's interacting with and I use them in two different ways in the show a lot of the time they're very soft edge and very subtle so you wouldn't if you looked at a picture you probably wouldn't think there was necessarily a follow spot there it's not obvious it sort of blends into the rest of the lighting look but it just gives a little bit more detail and focus to the action to the people we want to look at the most Essentially, you've created atmosphere and location with lighting, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily on its own provide enough illumination, particularly on people's faces. So exactly. That, uh, so the follow spot provides an accent. It, it does. It provides an accent. It provides a highlight. And um, our eyes tend to look for the brightest things. So if you make the, the, the main character on stage the brightest person on stage, that tends to help with the composition of the whole thing. I mean, that's a bit of a generalisation, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. So... They use for that, and they use generally in quite a subtle way, which is why I have some follow spots from the side, which sort of blend in with the rest of the lighting rig, and some from the, more from the front, which mm. um, are used in a more traditional way. And then for the concert moments, we go, we sometimes use them as sort of more traditional hard edge follow spots that you might see in a rock concert, so sort of full bodied and hard edged, and gives that sort of rock concert kind of feel. They're busy, aren't they? They're very busy. They're, I mean, they're on for the entire show. They're very, very, very busy, and nor, and it's hard when it's subtle as well because they have to seamlessly sort of fade in fade out and um quite often they're swapping between different characters at different times and there's people across the stage so it's a busy job and it's a skillful job you know mm -hmm. the many scenes they are the only light on the principles so if tina's having an argument with ike and the follow spots aren't on them you're not going to see them mm -hmm. so it's it's really important but what it, what's great is is it means that the lighting composition can be really all about the atmosphere and the shape and then i know i can get enough light on people by using the follow spots and the other thing that i should say is that of course, we're dealing with lots of different skin tones and skin colours. And what was exciting about the follow spots we chose for Tina is that I used LED follow spots where I can tune the colour. So I could I could actually build different colour palettes for different performers, which meant that it was, it was a really nice way of being able to kind of balance different people's skin tones to sort of build the whole composition together rather than trying to pick a generic colour that would kind of work for anybody. Because, of course, everybody's different and their wigs are different and their costumes are different too. So being able to tweak the colour for, for different moments or for different performers was incredibly useful.
So tech rehearsals finish, and there's this moment where you do a dress rehearsal, which is, I guess, or two. Yeah. No, we we finished the, we finished tech on time. Very good. Yeah. And then you you can't postpone the inevitable anymore. You have to present it to an audience, uh, uh, and this is, of course, the first preview. How did it go? Brilliantly. I mean, it's exciting. I, 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 the first preview in London was insane. We had the, the half the stalls were full of Tina Turner fans wearing wigs. I mean, it was. We thought we, <laughs> we weren't quite sure. It was. It was amazing, and they loved it. It was really, really exciting. And you were preaching to the converted. We were. Obviously. So I mean, I think it probably gave us a false <laughs> sense of general optimism because it was. You know, they just react as soon as they hear the first chords of any bit of music. So you might be doing this yeah. really miserable scene where Tina's just had a huge fight with Ike and she's staggering down with kind of downstage with blood kind of running down her face. <laughs> and then they just hear the first chord of Proud Mary and they're all kind of up yelling and cheering and going, mm, this isn't quite how we wanted this to land. You start seeing these things and, and understanding how audiences see these things. And that, that first preview in London was quite extreme. Do you experience the the framing device that an audience brings yeah absolutely i i definitely see a show differently when i'm in an, a preview audience i think for, for a couple of reasons during the entire tech and dress rehearsals i've generally been i move around i tend to try and move around the theater a bit but the majority of the time i've been sat at a desk with yeah. a bunch of screens around me and headphones yeah. on so i'm my experience of the show is diluted by assimilating a whole bunch of other information all the time. So, uh, you know, chat conversations on headphones. I'm constantly tweaking the lighting. So I'm changing things I'm looking at all the time. Plus other people are kind of popping around and giving me notes and things. So yeah. I'm only kind of half watching the show as an audience member would. So they take all that away. And of course, you're watching the show in a very different way because you're having a direct experience of it without those distractions. And then secondly, you're suddenly aware of being in a room full of people who are all, who are all probably paid to come and see the show who are therefore focused on it in a very different kind of way. And so you're aware of their concentration and where they get restless and where they focus and what they're looking at as well. You get you sort of notice that they're distracted by something. So you definitely see the show in a different way. And everybody does, which is why on a new musical, so many things can change during previews. We did a lot of work on Tina to change things around, just by understanding how the show came across, by watching it through the lens of other audience members. Just give us an idea of how long the previews lasted for. About two weeks, I think. Yeah, okay. It's not so bad. It's quite an intensive time, isn't it? Because you work during the day and then you have the preview in the evening and suddenly time is an absolute premium because you have all these notes to get through and actually getting access to the piece of set you need and the, and the correct costumes suddenly becomes very difficult. Actually, I remember it was was over, it was probably two and a half or even maybe three weeks, but what we did, which was kind of brilliant, um, I think brilliant producing, I think is that we basically, we had a couple of days a week without previews. So maybe Monday, Tuesday, we didn't do performances. And then we did Wednesday was the first performance. So we had a whole chunk of time to, to work on the show. So you essentially went back into tech mode. Yeah, exactly. Cause in previews you set everything up and, and rehearse and then take it all away again and get the, to ready for the audience. The amount of time work you can do each day is quite limited. And of course, the cast need to have a proper break before they perform in front of an audience and they need to have, you know, they need to eat, they need to get ready for costumes. You sort of, the, the day shrinks quite quickly. A lot of previous periods don't have matinees. I think we did Saturday matinees and then we didn't do a show on Monday or Tuesday. So we had a, a big chunk of time at the beginning of the week to get through a lot of notes. And that was invaluable because we did some quite significant changes to certain elements of the show and having sort of two full days to work through all that was was fantastically useful did you all have to negotiate what you worked on because I, I know it can be very frustrating sitting through the same scene that you know you've got to fix <laughs> night after night and never getting a chance to do it uh, we, we we chat about it afterwards and there's always priorities and you know it's interesting 
that when there's bits of the show that don't work, quite often you feel it's your own fault and then you realise that everyone else feels that it's their fault that that bit didn't work and then you go, okay, maybe we all need to work together to make this bit of the show better. So if there's a transition that wasn't really landing, I'd be sitting thinking, well, it's not landing because of the lighting shit, so therefore I need to have time to fix the lighting. And then you know, the sound guys are saying the same sort of thing and the costumes are saying, well, the change doesn't really work in time and the director's thinking they staged it wrong. And then suddenly you realise actually what we need to do is just go through and work out together as a team how we do this transition. And... Um, and then, of course, hopefully as a group, you can yeah. make it all better because actually yeah. it's, it's kind of everyone's problem that doesn't work. So we all need to get together and fix it. And sometimes the solution is something very straightforward and simple, isn't it? It's just finding it. Yeah, it's just finding it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Did you enjoy Press Night? I did, actually. I don't. I mean, Press Night, ugh, I, I always have mixed I, It depends. I, I don't always enjoy Press Night. I had a brilliant time with Press Night. It was, um, it was really fun. It was a lovely crowd. It was exciting because Tina herself was there. So obviously that it was kind of extra. I sat a couple of rows behind her, sort of watching her reaction to her story being told in front of her. I mean, she'd seen it a few times. She'd been involved a lot in rehearsals and in the writing of the script, but actually to, to be there in the audience sort of with her watching it and Press Night was quite exciting. And um, yeah. yeah, it was fun. And there was a good party afterwards. And you know, my wife came and some friends came and it was a really, yeah, really, really good night. It's been a huge success. Um, and of course, it's suffering an enforced hiatus like everybody else is at the moment because of our viral friend. But it's already transferred to Broadway, Hamburg, anywhere else? Uh, Utrecht, yeah, it's opened in Utrecht and, but only performed for a very few performances before the, the virus um, kicked in and closed it down. But yeah, it's... Um, Hopefully, it's set to come back though. Well, yeah, all being plans. well, if we can open theatres again, the plan is very much to um, to bring Tina back. Do you enjoy revisiting shows, or are you keen to move on to new challenges? I really enjoyed revisiting it for Broadway, particularly because um, we changed a fair amount of it. Actually, we'd learned a lot about the show in London, and uh, and then mm. sort of having the opportunity to do another full tech process and the full rehearsal process for you. Know, for the team meant that we could change some things and I think and it was exciting to do that and also the energy of the American cast is different so hearing their take on Tina's story because of course it's you know, it's something maybe they relate to, they can relate to more directly yeah. um, but, a, but a, a, a duplicate of a show like that offers you affords you the opportunity to redesign at a fundamental level doesn't it for yeah, everybody actually yeah uh, exactly I mean we didn't I guess I don't think it was a fundamental redesign. We were fairly happy with how it was in London, but it, the scale was different. Um, it was a much bigger theatre on Broadway. Things like the band platform were organised differently. It was sort of double stack band platform, um, which and I think it really helped for the energy of the show at the end because the Albrecht Theatre in London is, is is pretty tiny, and it was a stretch of the imagination to believe that this was a large-scale rock concert at the end. But I think on Broadway, the Luntfontein, it's a much, much bigger scale. So we could sort of expand it all and we put more lights in the auditorium. We sort of made that, we sort of scaled the whole thing up a bit to sort of match the the bigger scale of the venue. And also we knew more about the show and how and what the energy of the show was. So it was fun to sort of go back and revisit it and tweak the rig mm. to deliver that. Sort of distill, distill and refine yeah, well, refine and in, in some ways distill. I mean, we took away quite a lot of lights from... We, we shifted things around. There's a bunch of lights in London I didn't use much, so I cut those, but then I added some other ones that, to do different things in, on Broadway. And it was fun, you know, the, the revisiting the whole show and Techies again, you sort of... You, you move on. You're, it, it was probably 18 months, was it? Yeah, I can't remember the time it was between two, but, you know, my own taste obviously changes a bit and I had a, a slightly different team as well. And, 
you sort of look at it in a different way in a different venue with a different cast so things are bound to evolve which is exciting mm -hmm. brilliant thank you bruno i think it's time for the quick fire round <laughs> they did what's your favorite lantern probably a parkan which is a very very simple light um if so or if i had to pick a moving light it vary it, it changes with technology currently it is a a martin mac encore i would say um i think we share that but you know next week i might find something new well I, either that or the GL, a glp x4 bar 20 which is a kind right. of tilting light curtain which there are a lot of on tina and i love I've just specced a whole bunch of those for an opera I'm doing next year. Um, everyone's favourite question. What's your favourite tool? Oh, my God. I should have prepared for this, and I totally haven't. That's ridiculous. <laughs> for, for, for being a light designer making shows, it's probably my laptop because I do, I do all my planned drawing and everything on it. Um, though I am quite getting increasingly fond of an iPad where I can scribble notes with a pencil and mm. discreetly write in the stools during previews and things with, you know, writing grey on black um, and actually see what I'm writing rather than scribbling in a notebook. But um, I don't know. Do I love them as things? Not particularly, but they are definitely useful tools. BBC or ITV? I grew up with BBC, definitely. <laughs> Town or country? I'm very lucky to have the mix. I live in the country. I live in Cornwall. Um, as I keep mentioning, which is near the sea and kind of in the middle of nowhere. But I always work in city centres where theatres are, so I get, I'm get i very lucky to have the mix of the two. Best of both worlds. Yeah. Night Owl or Dawn Chorus? Yeah, Night Owl. I, I, I like working at night. I, li I like that. I like going out at night, and you know, I like the nighttime world, the theatre world, and um, you know, going for drinks after theatre at night. But also, even when I'm at home, and I, could, I find that I tend to, when I really have to sit and concentrate and draw a lighting plan, I'll tend to sit in my little room with the desk light on when everyone else has gone to bed and just stay up all night and do it. And I sort of find that my most focused, concentrated thinking happens in the middle of the night for some reason. Don't know the most why. productive. Yeah. I have to get, I mean, it takes a while to get into it, but when I really have to focus and concentrate, it tends, to, I tend to procrastinate and then suddenly everyone's gone to bed and I'm sat there and then actually that's when I can properly... There's something it. about the island created by a little angle poise lamp that and it's a bit like being at a production desk. In it a is. Well, it's probably it? a similar thing. I don't know what it is, but there's, it's, and I keep trying to be more efficient and work during the day and not stay up all night to deliver a lighting plant at the last minute. But mm. I always end up doing it in the middle of the night. On a more serious note, and uh, this is a difficult question for you, I think um, pudding or cheese? <laughs> cheese. Oh, no, straight in. Yeah, there. yeah, cheese. No, I, no hesitation. De savory, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and if you had a tech rider with a single requirement, what would it be? Please can I have a comfortable production desk that I can sit at um, with a chair that's an appropriate height to the desk. And if I can and if I can get a regular mug, a, a way of making a decent mug of tea, that would be fantastic as well. But uh, yeah, I'd like a comfortable desk, please. Producers and theatre owners take note. Um, I've just taken delivery from an online supermarket. The driver stood at a COVID-secure distance while I hefted several crates of booze into my kitchen. And once I've doused it all in antibacterial wipe and dettol, I'll pour you a cocktail. What's your poison? <laughs> well, depends where we are in the world. Okay, what about Sydenham, South London? <laughs> <laughs> what, are you back around at your house? Yeah. <laughs> I'll have a pint in the pub around the corner. <laughs> Brilliant. 
it's on its way. <laughs> As ever, if you have any questions, comments, or even ideas for future episodes, you can contact us on Instagram or Twitter at Making Theatre FM, or if you prefer, by email on makingtheaterpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a glowing review. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.